Hi, podcast audience. We've just kicked off our May Day to Memorial Day membership drive. Want to know more? Well, our goal is to increase our patrons by just 25 more before the end of May. If you love our show, will you help us? If you're already a member, spread the word and ask a friend to join you in membership. And if you're a first-time listener, become part of our patron community. Patrons receive extra content, behind-the-scenes research, and more. Become a patron today for as little as $3 a month at patreon.com forward slash The LF Show. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash The LF Show. Hi, I'm Laura Flanders, and this is The Laura Flanders Show, the TV and radio program that seeks to raise radical spirits by interviewing forward-thinking people with real-life models of shifting power from the few to the many in the worlds of arts, entrepreneurship, and governance. Purdue Pharma and other opioid makers are facing thousands of suits, accusing them of sparking a deadly opioid epidemic. But what's that got to do with your local art museum? This week, where public health and public art meet, is a powerful place for public action. Go to a major museum in any of a slew of big cities this summer, and you could well get a chance to do much more than look at pictures. People are protesting the funders of some of the world's most prestigious institutions, and they're looking not just at the art, but at the names on those buildings more closely. A case in point, the Sackler family. That name's become synonymous with giving to the arts. The Sacklers have donated millions to cultural institutions, including the Guggenheim and the Met in New York, and the Victoria and Albert and the Tate Museum in London. The Sackler family fortune comes from OxyContin, a powerful narcotic that's become one of the most common and aggressively marketed drugs involved in prescription overdose deaths. The company that markets the drug, Purdue Pharma, stands accused of criminal acts, including lying to doctors and the government. Fossil fuel dollars are also becoming increasingly toxic as activists take to the streets in this country and the UK. So what does all this mean for the arts and for public health and our culture? Let's talk about it with author and activist L.A. Kaufman, Professor Jonathan H. Marks, author of a new book on the perils of partnerships, and Jess Worth, co-director of Culture Unstained, who's joining us from the UK, where her group's working to end the fossil fuel sponsorship of culture. Welcome, all of you. Aye, where should we start? I mean, let's talk about how much money we're talking about to begin, then we'll talk about some of the actions. How much money are we talking about? Jonathan, you want to start there? Well, the ironic thing is that we're talking about what are relatively small sums of money, especially when it comes to corporate donors. It's almost drops in the ocean to them, millions of dollars here, here and there, compared to billions of dollars in revenue and profits. So that's the first thing, is that the money is a drop in the ocean to the corporate donors, but often it feels to the recipients like the water that's keeping them afloat. And the ubiquity of it all, L.A.? Well, certainly when you look into the Sackler family in the museum world, you can hardly go to a major museum without seeing their name on the wall. They um, were very savvy and strategic in trying to cleanse their reputation by giving widely and ensuring that every place they gave these, these drops in the ocean, relatively small amounts relative to their vast fortune, that they would be celebrated with signage and prestige. Mm, and what makes this money just so bad in your view? 
Well, the Sackler family uh, was uh, directly responsible for causing the opioid crisis. They oversaw an aggressive marketing campaign that misled patients and doctors about the strengths and dangers of their medication, their signature medication, OxyContin, and has led to hundreds of thousands of deaths. The aspect of this that has to do with fossil fuels, Jess, let me bring you in on that. It's not unrelated, it's similar. You've had some extraordinary actions even recently in the UK. Want to tell us about those? Yeah, there's a really um, growing movement in the UK of creative people challenging fossil fuel sponsorship of culture, particularly BP, which has sort of cherry-picked some of our most iconic cultural institutions like the British Museum, the National Portrait Gallery, the Royal Shakespeare Company to sponsor. Um, and so, and I'm part of this movement, we go into oil sponsored spaces and we kind of use the creative medium that's being that's, that's being used to critique the sponsorship. So there's, there's music, there's theater, there's performance art, there's a lot of audience participation. And we find that we get a different kind of response from people when we're in those cultural spaces, performing and being creative rather than if we were standing there with more traditional placards and banners. Let's see a clip of one of the recent demonstrations, this one at the British Museum. in the middle of a climate crisis. We are here because 16 years ago, the largest mobilization of people across the world took place to protest the Iraq war. Destroying lives and polluting water equals colonialism. The climate crisis is already destroying homes and lives, and BP is fueling it. The British Museum is complicit in this destruction by accepting BP's sponsorship. Those who are creating the crisis are the least affected by it. We must stand in solidarity with those on the front lines of climate change, resisting it wherever we can. This means dropping BP. These are the very same sponsors who advocated for the war, which destroyed my homeland and slaughtered my people all in the name of oil. To BP and to the British Museum, I say how dare you. Just coming back to you for a second, why the cultural funding especially? Why has that gotten your, your goat and why is that your target at this point? Yeah, I mean, it kind of starts with one of the biggest stumbling blocks to climate action. And it's pretty clear that the power and the influence of the fossil fuel industry and the lobbying that they do is one of the main things that's actually stopping us decarbonizing at the at the speed we need to. Um, and so we look at, well, how are oil companies allowed to do that? It's because they have what, what they call a social license to operate. It's like the permission we as a society give them to go about their business activities in the way that we do, that they do. And they very, very 
strategically target cultural organisations to sponsor, to partner with, and that's part of trying to shape that social licence to operate. They're essentially trying not just to appeal to the general public and to kind of improve their reputation. They can't be that bad if they're sponsoring the British Museum, can they? But also they're trying to appeal to sort of political and cultural and financial elites that all kind of network together on the boards of these institutions, at the VIP receptions and so on. And so it's a very calculated move by BP, which is facing not just an image problem, but an existential mm. challenge in that we need to leave fossil fuels in the ground and we need to transition 100% away from them very fast over the next few decades. Um, and so it's fighting back with cultural sponsorship. So we're basically going to the place where BP is trying to shape its own image and telling a different story. Mm. And the Sacklers, I mean, does that Sackler investment in the arts, does it work to reach the elites and so, so on that, that Jess was just talking about? Well, I think what we've seen with the Sackler family was they have been able for decades to avoid any kind of accountability for their actions in the opioid crisis. And the, you know, I don't know that it's been the networking so much as the cultural prestige that they, that they bought with their money that is part of what has insulated them from accountability of any kind. Um, at the but same because time, people just don't want to go off to someone they sat next to at a gala or something. I think it's. I think the way it works is a little more subtle and diffuse than that. Um, but I don't think that it's accidental. Um, you know, the the work that that our group, Pain Prescription Addiction Intervention, now has done protesting the Sacklers. We've held a series of disruptive protests, much like the BP or not BP protests, um, in museums. Um, you know, that work built on the work of journalists um, and uh, a number of major lawsuits that have, were lodged against the Sackler family. But I don't think it's accidental that at the same time that we, through protest, have made inroads in their sanitizing of their reputation in cultural institutions, that we suddenly see lawsuits that are tackling and charging individual members of the Sackler family and holding them legally accountable. I think um, the larger cultural climate of impunity in this era is something that arts institutions have uh, unfortunately been part of, and these protests are successful in undermining. Can you, can you prove, I mean, I want to believe that it's true, I want to believe, but can you prove a connection between your like fabulous actions at the Guggenheim and, for example, the new Attorney General in New York, Letitia James, bringing a suit? Well, I haven't spoken to anyone from the Attorney General's office, but certainly when you look at the settlement that just happened uh, not too long ago, with Purdue Pharma in the case in Oklahoma, one of the reasons that they settled as quickly as they did is they did not want that to go to a jury trial. And they did not want that to go to a jury trial because there has, thanks to our actions and the work of many journalists and actions by others, been so much publicity that the jury pool is highly influenced mm -hmm. by the new common sense that these were criminal actions by the Sackler family that they should be held accountable for. There are people, um, Jonathan, aren't there, who say, well, this is, isn't, isn't this kind of a win-win? I mean, it's better that the corporations are doing something good. They made this money. And where else are we going to get our money from for art and culture? So these are the stories we're commonly told. It's a win-win for everyone. But I want to make a distinction. I think it's an important one between corporate influence and individual donors. Mm -hmm. Now, the money they get, obviously, is not distinct. But I want to talk about the difference. So... When corporations like BP or Coca-Cola, which is also funding exercise initiatives throughout Britain, other food companies, opioid companies like Purdue Pharma, 
when they sort of build their webs of influence, right, that's directly contributing to a public health problem. So when Purdue Pharma gave money to pain management organizations, patient advocacy groups, those groups produced guidelines encouraging more prescribing. And when the CDC tried to create guidelines pushing back on prescribing, they sort of lobbied the CDC saying, no, 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 we shouldn't make it difficult for people to get access to opioids. So it is important to recognize that these corporate webs of influence are the ones that are usually directly fueling the problems. And that's not to say that individual donors burnishing their family reputations is not problematic. That can be problematic for the reasons we've already heard. But I think it is important to make that distinction. This is The Laura Flanders Show. I'm Laura. My guests are Jonathan H. Marks, director of the bioethics program at Penn State University and affiliate faculty in law and international affairs. He's the author of a new book, Perils of Partnership, and via Skype from the UK, Jess Worth. She's been actively involved in challenging oil company sponsorship as co-founder of BP or Not BP and the Art Not Oil Coalition. She's currently co-director of Culture Unstained in the UK. And last but not least, activist and author L.A. Kaufman. She's a member of the activist group SACLA, P-A-I-N, Pain. Her latest book is How to Read a Protest. For our podcast subscribers, we have an audio extra for you. A longer conversation with Jonathan Marks specifically about his book following this show. By subscribing to the podcast, you'll also receive my commentaries on the opportunity cost of one-note coverage on Barr and Muller, while a whole lot of stories have been scarcely covered, like healthcare and reproductive rights. Put your love for this show and all we do in covering many issues into action by becoming a member. This show is made possible by you, our supporters. You make it possible for us not to depend on corporate sponsors. And I'll be glad about that. Go to patreon.com forward slash the LF show to learn more. Next, we put into context the growing reliance on corporate funding for cultural institutions in relation to the state withdrawing its responsibility for funding the arts. Here's Reverend Billy and the Stop Shopping Choir, a radical activist performance community with Beatitudes from their premiere album, The Shopocalypse. Blessed are you. Blessed is the artist who is not corporate sponsored. You're the one who's going to teach us peace. Somebody give me a peace hallelujah today. Blessed are you. Blessed are you who confuse consumerism with freedom. You'll be delighted to discover the difference. Amen. Blessed are the advertisers. Blessed are the celebrities. You're waiting for the remarkable restfulness of honesty. Blessed are you. Blessed are the neighborhoods people flew from in fear. Your children shall reappear to illuminate the dark economy. Blessed are you. Well, the other structural point is the context in which all this funding is happening, which is a withdrawal by the state from its responsibilities for funding art. I mean, this period that we're talking about, well, in the UK, it's a period of austerity. Is that connected to the sort of surfacing of this issue as a priority, Jess? 
I think it definitely makes it harder for organisations to say no, but actually these relationships with BP in particular go back quite a long way. So I think this is a tactic that the oil industry and other very controversial industries like tobacco and arms have used for quite a long time um, to improve their reputation. What about that sort of systemic shift of, of responsibility vis-a-vis -vis the webs that you're talking about? Yeah, so I think what happens is public bodies are underfunded as are cultural institutions and so they're looking for money and corporations are quite happy to provide that money. It's a drop in the ocean for them and it builds these relationships and webs of influence. But so I it, guess what I'm saying is it doesn't it also in a way give government permission to back out. So Those points of light that George W. Herbert Walker Bush used to talk about. So absolutely, it tends to fuel this. And what I've said um, publicly and indeed to my own institution and to other institutions, is that public health officials, academic administrators, and for that matter, leaders of cultural institutions should stop taking money from corporate donors with great public celebration while keeping their reservations privately to themselves. It's time for them to speak out and say, make the case for why their organizations need public funding. But wouldn't they just say, oh, well, then we'd have to close our doors? Isn't that what they say, L.A.? I mean, that is what they say, but it's not clear that those are the only alternatives. Absolutely. I think that, that uh, when you look at some institutions like the Metropolitan Museum, like, do they really need to be continually expanding? When yeah. you're talking about expansions, we're talking about property acquisition, um, capital investment. It's not just more shows they've been doing, which, which does suggest they're not hard up for cash. Yeah, the, you see a lot of moves towards aggressive expansion by institutions that seem to be moving them away from their core mission, and they're funded by this dirty money. And in many cases, you, you begin to wonder, are museums first and foremost looking to showcase art, or are they first and foremost looking to showcase galas for the ultra-rich? You mentioned the words dirty money, and that always sends off a firestorm of all money, in a sense, is dirty in a capitalist system. Someone's been exploited, someone's been expropriated, some land has been despoiled. How do you draw the line, Jess, or do you? Well, I think it's actually up to cultural organizations to draw the line, depending on what their mission and their values are. And actually, they, they always have done probably the same in the US. If you look back 20 years, so much art and so much sport was sponsored by tobacco companies. They were absolutely everywhere. And then gradually as society sort of woke up to the dangers, just as is happening with the opioid crisis now, government started to regulate. It just became completely unacceptable for tobacco companies to be sponsorship partners anymore. So things shift. And I think there's already, there are ethical guidelines that museums and galleries use when they're looking at new sponsors. They're supposed to go through a process of due diligence and so on. That's good practice in the sector. Sector-wide bodies like the Museums Association and the Institute of Fundraisers say that is good practice. So the problem is not that this is a new idea. It's that actually these institutions aren't taking these responsibilities seriously or haven't thought carefully enough about what are our values and who are appropriate organisations to partner with. So I think we're seeing a rebalancing at the moment of where those red lines are drawn in a, in a really positive way. And it's almost like it's a new engagement with some of the crises that have 
become more evident in society over the last few years, like climate change and like the opioid crisis. Um, and cultural institutions are, are just sort of catching up and realizing that maybe they need to do something. Do they know how to draw the lines? I mean, you teach bioethics, Jonathan. I do, I do. People often talk about institutions becoming corrupted, but if you want an institution to change and you tell them they're becoming corrupted, they'll go on the defensive. So here's what I say, do you care about integrity? They say, yes. What does integrity mean for us as individuals? What we say, what we do, what we, we believe, they should be consistent with each other. And the same thing goes for institutions. You look at what an institution says it does, its mission. You look at what its purpose is and its finding document. And you look at what it actually does. Mm. Those should be consistent. And then you look at the institution you're taking money from and you ask the same question. What do they do? What do they say they do? And what are they obligated to do? And if there's a tension between all those and what your own institution does, says it does, and is an obligation to do, then that's a problem for you. But I will tell you that my feeling is that right now the way institutions are reacting is not primarily with their integrity in mind, but with public trust in mind. Mm -hmm. Now, public trust is important, but bolstering trust in institutions that don't have integrity or trustworthiness is problematic. I want institutions to stop going first and foremost to PR managers and thinking instead about institutional ethics. One of the great examples right now is this epidemic of measles um, and refusal to vaccinate because of people's lack of trust in those vaccines. Absolutely. And here's what I would say. We really have to solve the problem of corporate influence in science and public health before you can solve the anti-vaccine movement. And people who try to do the latter without the former are, I'm afraid, doomed to fail. Well, that takes me back to how the heck do you do that in a for-profit medical system? I mean, what would Purdue Pharma say their mission is? Is it to relieve pain or make enormous profits? Well, what they say and what they do are quite different. Yes, they say that their mission is to, is to alleviate pain. But we've seen that they have done so in a way that overly pushes pain medications on people who don't need them and that um, pushes dosages onto people that become very quickly addictive. It needs to be said we did reach out to at least one branch of the Sackler family, Elizabeth Sackler, who um, I've known in a social sense. She supported the first feminist art uh, gallery institution, I think, in the world at the Brooklyn Art Museum. When asked about this, she will say, my branch of the family didn't benefit. What do you say? There were um, three brothers in the Sackler family, and Arthur Sackler and his heirs claimed that they are not complicit with the opioid crisis because Arthur died before OxyContin was produced. However, Arthur Sackler was the marketing genius who, in the development and promotion of Valium, created a model of aggressive promotion of prescription drugs for uses that went way beyond the strictest labeled use, um, and that set a pattern of extreme profitability and dependency. Our group has protested at the Arthur Sackler Gallery at the Smithsonian Museum in Washington, D.C., and we don't make a distinction between the different branches of the family in terms of their culpability and their need to... Um, be accountable to the vast, vast human wreckage that was created by their actions. Mm, is Elizabeth Sackler moved by the fact that pain is headed up by one of our great women artists, photographer Nan Golden? 
Elizabeth Sackler has expressed support for, for Nan Golden and for the work that she's been doing, um, but it's, at this point it has been only words and has not been backed up by any actions of any kind. Elizabeth Sackler, come on, come talk to us. Um, Jess, back to you. We're having this conversation in a country that has for-profit medicine, and I think that has led to all kinds of reasons for mistrust, for abuse, etc. How do you think that affects the situation in the UK that you, you do have a national health system? We do. We have a national health system and we need to hang on to it because what's going on at the moment, I'm sure you've heard all about Brexit and the sort of chaos that our politics has descended into. And one of the things that's really at risk is if we do leave the European Union and we start signing trade deals with the US, one of the things is that the pharmaceutical companies have really got their eye on our national health service. So we need to be really careful about that. I'd actually like to go back to sure. what Jonathan said about what we're not really seeing is institutions actually showing integrity. Yeah. It's almost like they're responding to crises with a sort of public relations move. Um, and I, I think we might have just seen the first example of the opposite of that in the UK, because just a couple of weeks ago, um, the Edinburgh Science Festival, which has been sponsored by different oil companies for years, is currently sponsored by Exxon and Total, actually made statements saying that they would no longer take any funding from fossil fuel companies or from industry, oil industry lobby groups. I'm just going to read this because it's really groundbreaking, I think. They said, um, with climate change ever present and urgent, we feel increasingly compromised by the conflict between accepting sponsorship from fossil fuel companies and programming events that scrutinise the main causes of climate change. There's a conflict between their behaviour and the underlying science. And that's exactly what we've been arguing. Um, and so it's really fantastic to see uh, a cultural organisation sort of acknowledging that for themselves and making such a strong statement. And so I'm hopeful that maybe this could be the first domino that starts to fall um, and that cultural organisations can be a bit more proactive about safeguarding their integrity and don't have to do it as a kind of rearguard action when the pressure becomes too much. Mm. LA, victories so far here that you want to mention, dominoes falling? Well, we had a whole series of victories uh, beginning first, the National Portrait Gallery announced that they would not accept a major gift, uh, major for them, drop in the ocean for the Sacklers of $1.4 million, uh, or may have been 1.4 million pounds um, from the Sackler family. And then that was quickly followed first by the Tate um, and then the Guggenheim. And within 48 hours, uh, the, both the Sackler Trust and the Sackler Foundation in the UK announced that they were suspending all giving for the time being. Um, a series of other institutions have followed. We saw the dominoes falling very quickly. Um, the question, of course, is what happens to those funds now? And uh, the urgent need is for vast sums of money to go into treatment and recovery for the huge numbers of people who are struggling with addiction, um, who find it very hard, uh, it's very difficult to get medication-assisted treatment. There are very few doctors who can prescribe it. Um, there are very few safe injection facilities. Um, they are underground for the most part. There's uh, you know, an enormous need to kind of claw that money back from the Sackler family and, and put it um, to addressing the crisis. That hasn't happened yet, but these, these dominoes falling represent a, a real shift um, in accountability. And certainly uh, what we're hoping is that uh, as these lawsuits proceed, 
um, that we will see those funds um, taken from the Sackler family, clawed back from where they've transferred it um, overseas, um, and applied to programs that can, can help people struggling with the consequences of their actions. That's the divest, invest part, kind of. Um, Jonathan, to you, we saw this year the huge um, fire at the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. And as people have been talking about rebuilding, a whole conversation has broken out that touches on these matters. Absolutely. The news today, of course, is that a number of um, individual benefactors have come forward. Somebody offered 100 million euros, and then that was somebody else came in with an offer of 200 a day or two after. Um, and so it's raised this question about the, the very structure of taxation and the very structure of public giving. We live in a culture where the norm is you do well, then you do good. Um, and the question, and what the people in France are doing now is calling that very norm into question. Should we be thinking of a different way of going about things? And I will say that there's been some empirical research in the corporate uh, social responsibility world which shows that companies engage in what's often called either moral licensing or moral compensation. And moral licensing means that having been generous in the public sphere, they then, that then sort of justifies or fuels them engaging in problematic unethical business practices. And moral compensation is having engaged in those ethically problematic practices they then give. And so that, I think, is something we need to really focus on. But you don't think there's a Notre Dame brought to you by Total in our future? So I do think institutions should be much more careful with their naming rights. There was, as you may recall, a Ken Lay chair of business ethics. Mm. And I think what institutions are beginning to realize is that, is that their institution's reputation depends on the, the names they stick on the front of their buildings. And they are, I think, going forward, going to need to be much more careful about that. We will continue this conversation. I want to thank everybody for, for coming on the program today. It's been great talking with you. Congratulations. Thanks so much for, for having me. Thank you. The show's not over yet. My conversation continues with Jonathan Marks about his book, Perils of Partnership. It ain't pretty, and we've got to talk about our options. Meanwhile, if you want to see the BP activists in action at the British Museum, check out all the video at our website. That's also where you'll find my past interview with L.A. Kaufman about her first book on movement building and other related shows in our archive. That's at lauraflanders.org. For links, research materials, and more good stuff, go to patreon.com. See the goodies we have there. That's patreon.com forward slash the LF show. You don't have to become a member, but we hope you will. We have just kicked off our May Day to Memorial Day membership drive, and we have a goal of bringing you into our inner circle. You can join by making a commitment for just $3 a month. And by doing so, you will keep us out of the imperiled partnerships and in partnership with you. That's how we like it. I hope you'll help. I'm Laura. Thanks for listening. In his book, The Perils of Partnership, Jonathan H. Marks argues that public-private partnerships create webs of influence that distort research and policy and reinforce the framing of public health problems and their solutions in ways that are least threatening to the commercial interests of those corporate partners. We expect multinational corporations to develop strategies of influence, but Professor Marx argues that public institutions, ranging from museums to health agencies, can and should develop counter-strategies 
to insulate themselves from all this corporate influence. We started this conversation on our show around taking dubious money out of cultural institutions. We're continuing it now, one-on-one, and thank you for staying around, Jonathan. Thank you for having me. So where did this all come from? I mean, have we always had, I mean, I guess we have always had individual patrons and sponsors of the arts and public institutions. Um, The Ford Foundation sets up a foundation, funds good things, um, including us on a good day. Um, Rockefeller, you name it. Is there something categorically different about what's happening today, or has it just always been awful? I tell the story at the the beginning of the book. It's a parable that David Foster Wallace used in his address at Kenyon College. Two young fish swimming uh, along one day, and an older fish swims by and says, Morning, boys, how's the water? And they sort of smile nervously. And once the old fish goes, one young fish turns to the other and says, What's water? And this is the water that policymakers and public health officials have learned to swim in, the water of public-private partnerships, the water of collaborating with the corporations that are creating or exacerbating the very problem you're trying to solve. And as you point out, there's a corollary, a thing on the other side, that has to do with the receding of other sorts of funding. I mean, your statistic on the WHO budget really took me back. No, absolutely. If you look at the WHO's biennial budget, the World it, Health Organization, the World Health Organization's budget, it is dwarfed by the advertising budgets of Coke and Pepsi for their two leading brands. Um, and then you think about all the other corporate entities and their advertising budgets put together. In fact, you can compare the, those advertising budgets with the budgets of any public health agency. So, is this just how capitalism works? I mean, you pile up this much money and it becomes corrosive wherever it falls. Well, I think the important thing to say is we've created corporations to make a profit by selling goods and services. That's the system we live in. And we should totally expect corporations to try and develop webs of influence, strategies of influence, to the full extent that the law permits them to do so. But I argue it's the responsibility of public health agencies and academic institutions, among others, to insulate themselves from that influence. Well, so how do they do that? I mean, you have a lot of examples in the book, some of them hypothetical, but nonetheless, that put the reader in the position of, okay, I want this park. The only way I'm going to get the funding, it seems, is from this foundation set up by a corporation, maybe of sugar purveyors. Um, what do you do? Well, I think the first thing you have to do is stop taking industry money to great public celebration while keeping your reservations to yourself. And I've said that quite clearly to public health agencies and to academic administrators at universities, including my own. If there are reservations, let's talk about them publicly. And if you don't have the courage to do it on your own, what about doing it collectively? So a few years ago, a number of university presidents, including my own, wrote a letter to the Department of Commerce, along with 120-something other university presidents, saying, don't regulate our relationships with industry. We need those relationships in order to solve problems and do great research. I think they could have written a much better letter. They could have said, you society are relying on us, the academy, to solve climate change, the opioid crisis, the obesity epidemic, cancer... Don't make us dependent on industry money if we want to solve these problems. We have to be able to look everywhere, including places that are threatening to the interests of corporate actors. So you can't simultaneously cut corporate taxes and then tell us alone that we can't take corporate money? 
So <laughs> one interesting thing is the, the way in which our corporate tax structure is right now. So it creates a powerful incentive for corporations to give because they also get these de- gifts are tax deductible. So there's a benefit for them. But I will tell you that I have spoken to public health officials who say, you know, we had this project being funded by this corporate entity and the third quarter came and their profits dropped and they pulled out because they no longer had a tax benefit. And we were left holding the baby. So two things about that. Every one of those tax benefits is a dollar out of public coffers. That's right, yes. I talk, I talk, I talk about the philanthro-feudal complex <laughs> where, you know, instead of giving through an accountable mechanism like government, corporations and benefactors get to give to whoever they feel like and get the kind of prestige kickback. Well, not only that, but they also get to frame what's done. You know, if I'm a corporation and I give you a university institution money to do X, you'll do X. But even if I give it without so-called strings attached, I think it's deeply problematic. You know, so if I was to say to you, Laura, here's $10 million, do with it what you like, and you know that I have another billion and I might give you some more of that, are you going to do anything with that $10 million to upset me? In fact, are you going to do anything at all to upset me? Probably not. Is that the tyranny of the second gift that the, you talk about? That's the tyranny of the next gift I talk about in the book. And I think it's a greatly neglected problem, yeah. So what the heck do we do? What do we do if we're a public institution? You've said be more articulate, more outspoken about your ambivalences or your doubts. Um, that, doesn't, that seems like a kind of... Well, that's, that's not the only thing okay, you can do. That's the first thing you can do, which is a matter of integrity, not to keep your reservations to yourself, but to speak publicly about them. But a second thing to do is to think about with whom we could build collaborative relationships that are not problematic. Like home. So, for example, if you are a local public health authority, you could build a vertical collaborative relationship with state, federal, and an international body like the World Health Organization. Or you could build horizontal collaborations with other local health authorities. Or you could do both, right? But the point is these would be collaborations with institutions that didn't have a mission or a purpose that conflicts with your own. And we have seen some examples. Um, The state's attorney generals meet regularly, And what we've seen, of course, is them collaborating now in legal action against opioid companies, not just Purdue Pharma, which we mentioned in the previous segment, but a whole host of other pharmaceutical companies, too. That's an example of collaboration to solve a problem. But they can collaborate in other ways, too, beyond legal action against um, corporate uh, uh, malfeasance. And we should say, I mean, with the activities that the university is doing, our our research, um, among other things... Uh, what else is the kind of activity that gets funded and are there other possibilities for collaboration based on the nature of those activities? So absolutely. Um, corporations are quite anxious to build um, webs of, and strategies of influence. And so they fund research universities to do the kind of research that would be least threatening to their interests. So for example, we have a lot of research on treatments for cancer and, and potential cures for cancer, but mainly treatments, and I have no objection to that. But where's the research on causes and prevention? And one of the reasons why we don't have that research on causes and prevention is because it would call into question a lot of products that are the leading brands of major corporate actors, like makeup products, the makeup I'm wearing on my face in the studio. Who's done the research to explore whether that's a potential carcinogen, for example? Yeah, we've seen that with the... Um the Komen Foundation around breast cancer. There's you know, a lot of focus on, on breast cancer awareness and curing, but not the relationship of the pharmaceutical companies to the poisons that might be causing it. 
and in fact, it's interesting when um, uh, the Susan G. Komen Foundation responded to that critique by creating a tiny sliver of funding for cause and prevention research, but dwarfed totally by the treatment research. We haven't talked about the trust factor. Um, we've touched on it, but we are right now here in the United States looking at an outbreak of measles unlike anything we've seen in a quarter of a century. How do you explain what's going on and how do we address that as a society? So I think that the anti-vaccine movement um, is one which is deeply linked to the problem of corporate influence in public health research and policymaking. And you can't solve um, the problem of anti-vaccine movements until you solve the more fundamental problem. Um, It is true that industry-funded research produces findings that are more favorable to industry sponsors across all fields of biomedical and scientific research. Until we face up to that problem and solve it, we're always continually going to be struggling with distrust of the medical profession, which is obviously what has been fueling anti-vaccine movements, which has in turn fueled the measles outbreaks, among several others. So I think that we should stop separating the two and start bringing those conversations together. There was a recent study uh, done by um, a number of my colleagues um, at Harvard that looked at um, studies that purported to be funded by industry and asked physicians whether they would trust and have confidence in those studies. And when the studies were funded by industry, they trusted them less. So the scenario may change. The lack of public trust may fuel us to rethink some of these relationships and some of these problems. And I don't think that we're going to deal with the anti-vaccine movement until we solve the Mm. public trust problem. Finally, I think to, to wrap up, Let's talk just a little bit about some of the standards that you would like to see imposed and and some of the shifts that you think are possible. Because there might be people that are just saying, this isn't even possible. This problem is so um, hardwired. We have seen progress on lobbying, haven't we, with politicians saying they're running corporate free. So that some politicians have indeed said that. But what I do want to emphasize is that even, for example, in countries like Britain, where we have much stricter campaign finance laws, there are still public-private partnerships in public health. So I do think that problem hasn't been solved. But I do think the model, if I can at least persuade people to shift the default, the default now is you partner with industry. Let's start from the other side. Let's start from the default that the appropriate relationship between a public health agency and a corporation is arm's length, and you have to make an incredibly compelling case as to why it should be otherwise. And that case should look not just at public trust, but also at the integrity of your own organization and how its integrity may be undermined by partnering with that of another institution. Beautiful. Jonathan H. Marks is the author of The Perils of Partnership, Industry Influence, Institutional Integrity, and Public Health. You can get more information about the book at our website. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. You were just listening to a Laura Flanders minicast exclusive to our podcast listeners. To listen to this interview in its entirety, go to Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash The L-F Show. Become a member and support The Laura Flanders Show for as little as $2 a month.